I'm Julie Rovner from NPR. Thank you for being here on this beautiful afternoon when it would be lovely to be outside. So, uh, but I, I am excited to be here. I hope you are too. Uh, as I said, I'm Julie Robner from NPR, and the first thing I'm going to do is ask everyone not to turn off your cell phones, but to please at least put them on stun. I only have my cell phone out because I'm going to time everyone else. Um, I am happy to be here, and I assume you are too, to discuss what I humbly think of as one of the more important pieces of health policy research of the last, I don't know, at least decade or so. As you all know, Medicaid is very much in the news these days, particularly with the work of the so-called super committee. Those are the people who are charged with finding $1.2 trillion in deficit reduction in the next, what is it, seven weeks or so. Some people think Medicaid is one of the best programs government ever created, and some people think it's one of the worst, and I think very few people think it's anywhere in between. So I was particularly pleased to discover in my inbox the week before the 4th of July an embargoed paper about a randomized control trial of people with and without Medicaid coverage. Now, I'm enough of a wonk to remember reading about the RAND health insurance experiments back in the 1970s. For those of you who haven't turned off your phones, you can Google that. Um, but this this particular paper got me pretty excited. And for all of those who are not quite as wonky as me, a randomized controlled trial is kind of the gold standard of research, both medical research and health policy research. And it's pretty much impossible in this kind of situation to get a randomized controlled trial going because it would be unethical to give some people health insurance and withhold it from others. Except in this case, the case we're going to talk about this afternoon, it kind of fell into the researchers' laps. And I won't go any further than that, lest I get too far ahead of my most esteemed panel here. So here's how we're going to proceed. First, I'm going to introduce our main speaker, Kate Baker. She's one of the principal authors of the study. Kate will speak for about 20 minutes. Then we'll have about 10 minutes where you can ask what I am calling clarifying questions. We'll have time for discussion later. Uh, after Kate's finished, I will introduce the rest of our panel. They will each speak for about 10 minutes. If we all behave ourselves, that should leave us about 20 minutes at the end for what I hope will be a spirited question and answer period. Sound good? Here we go. Next page. So without further ado, Kate Baker is a professor of health economics at the Harvard School of Public Health and serves as MedPAC commissioner and on the CBO panel of health advisors. She was a member of President Bush's Council of Economic Advisors. And here's Kate to discuss her study. Much and thank you all for coming. I couldn't be more excited to talk to you about the study, and you'll get that idea as I work myself up into a tizzy. But we were truly thrilled with the opportunity to apply the gold standard of a randomized controlled trial to one of the big questions facing us what does expanding Medicaid to low income adults actually do? This is a collaborative effort, so I'm lucky to be representing a broad group of people, including, importantly, state budget officers and Medicaid officers in Oregon who made the study possible, a wide field of researchers and experts from the National Center for Health Statistics, and generous funding both from federal and foundation sources. So this really came together as a big team's efforts. And what we're going to try to answer for you in 20 short slides is what is the effect of expanding public health insurance? What does it do to costs? What does it do to benefits? How does it affect different people? You would think that we knew the answer to this question. Like, haven't we been looking at Medicaid for decades? Shouldn't we already know? 
But the truth is it's very hard to figure out the answers to those questions, in part because people who are covered by Medicaid look very different from people who aren't covered by Medicaid, not just because of their insurance status, but because of income, education, underlying health status. So if you were just to compare people who are on Medicaid to people who aren't on Medicaid and say, what's the difference in health use and health outcomes, you would be going too far to attribute all of those differences to Medicaid itself. Maybe it's something about poverty. Maybe it's something about where people live. Maybe it's something about their jobs. All of those things affect people's propensity to be on Medicaid and the health outcomes that you care about. So simply comparing those on Medicaid to those not could give you very misleading answers. What you'd like to do is have a randomized controlled trial, but until now, that evidence didn't exist because it would ordinarily be unethical to randomize people into healthcare or no healthcare just for the sake of doing a scientific experiment. This is a problem faced by a lot of social science and health policy questions. What's the effect of education? I don't know, let's lock some kids in the basement. We don't do that anymore. So <laughs> what, what you have to do instead is break out a set of statistical tools, tricks of the trade, to try to discern the effect of the program itself. What does Medicaid do? There are quasi-experimental approaches. You try to control for other factors like income. You take those into account. It's not that people don't try to take those things into account. And when you do, you get a better answer than if you didn't take them into account. But fundamentally, you cannot isolate the effect of insurance itself. The one randomized trial we see in the world of health insurance is the RAND health insurance experiment, which was led by Joe Newhouse, who's one of the investigators on this study as well, and one of my colleagues at Harvard. What they did was they randomized people into different types of insurance, some with more generous copayments, some with more uh, stringent copayments. And from that, we learned how much does healthcare consumption change when you change the price of healthcare. If people have small copays, do they consume more healthcare? Do, does demand for healthcare slope down? Turns out, not shocking to any economist, but surprising to everybody else, yes, health insurance affects healthcare use. And when healthcare costs less, people consume more of it. And that's the gold standard of evidence today for looking at what the price effect on healthcare consumption is because it was a randomized controlled trial. But no one was randomized into no insurance. They were randomized across different insurance plans. So from the RAND health insurance experiment, you can't tell what being uninsured versus being insured does to healthcare because everybody in the experiment was insured. And in steps our study to answer that question for you. Now, why are we able to do that? The state of Oregon has an expansion program for Medicaid for low-income, able-bodied adults. Now, I don't think this comes as a surprise to anyone in this room, but when I give this talk more broadly to audiences that aren't as well-versed in health policy, they're somewhat surprised to learn that people living below the poverty line are not, in general, eligible for a public health insurance program. But there are certain groups that are categorically eligible for Medicaid, children, the disabled, elderly, dual eligibles, et cetera, all those categories. And those vary state to state in how the cutoffs are determined. And some states have an optional program for low-income adults. Oregon was one of those programs until 2004, and that program is called OHP Standard, not to be confused confusingly with the categorical eligibility program OHP Plus. I didn't name them. OHP standard closed to new enrollment in 2004 because Oregon didn't have enough money. Then there was attrition in the program. People's income changed. They moved. They fell off of eligibility. And program roles declined until Oregon decided it had enough money to enroll 10,000 new people. So this program existed but was closed to new enrollment until 2008 when they said, we can enroll 10,000 more people. We know there's more demand than that. 
So they opened up a reservation list or a waiting list for five weeks in early 2008. 90,000 people signed up for that waiting list. And from that, they drew names by lottery. Ding, 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 ding. And from that list comes our experiment. They drew some names by chance. That's our treatment group. Other people's names were not selected by chance. That's our control group. So we can use that to say, what does expanding health insurance to this group do? Now, you should be aware that they drew 30,000 names to get 10,000 enrollees. Why is that? First, the list wasn't so great. There wasn't a lot of detail on the list about how to reach people. Some people were signed up by friends or doctors or family members. So the addresses that they had weren't all good. So not everybody got an application. Of the people who got applications, not all of them sent them back. And of the ones who sent them back, not all of them were actually eligible. The goal of the reservation list was to get as many people signed up in as short a period as possible. So they did massive outreach. They made it really easy to sign up. People just had to write their name and address and their date of birth on a list. That didn't evaluate eligibility. Once their name was selected, then they had to fill out the eight-page Medicaid application showing proof of income below the poverty line, showing legal residence, showing all sorts of things that some people couldn't produce the documentation for. So about 60% of people who were sent an application, successfully mailed it back, and about 50% of those who mailed it back were actually deemed eligible. So our treatment group, and this is a, a technical point, but it's important for interpreting our data. Our treatment group is everyone whose name was selected. Our control group is everyone whose name was not selected. Of our treatment group, only 10,000 ended up enrolled. For those of you who are familiar with reading medical trials, from that we can calculate an intent to treat what's the effect of getting your name drawn, and a treatment on the treated. What's the effect of actually enrolling? And I'm not going to go into all the details of how we do that. The important thing to know is that all of the analysis relies on the fact that there was a coin flip. The people who were drawn from the list look exactly like the people who weren't drawn from the list, except for having a lucky number. So we're going to use that to evaluate several different aspects of potential effects of health insurance. The first is we're going to look at the cost in terms of healthcare utilization. How much more care do you use if you're selected for Medicaid than if you're not? Now, some people think of that as a benefit. The point of health insurance is to be able to consume healthcare. But really, from an economics perspective, I think of that as a cost. What people are trying to do is get healthy. And the way you get healthy is you use healthcare resources. So the cost to society is providing these resources. The benefits then come down the line. So we're going to look at what happens to people's healthcare utilization. And it's not obvious, without looking at these data, what that answer would be. Well, first of all, we think insurance should increase utilization because we've just given you this thing, insurance that's valuable, so you now have more resources to work with. We've lowered the price of healthcare, and I just told you from the RAND health insurance experiment, we know when the price of healthcare is lower, you consume more. All of that would suggest you should consume more, but there are some forces that go in the other direction. One of them, in particular, applies to Medicaid, because people may say, you know what, Medicaid's not such good insurance. It doesn't pay providers very much. It's hard to find a provider. Maybe your access to care doesn't actually improve that much when you get Medicaid. So that's an empirical question. What does the data tell us? Now, the first benefit that comes from having this insurance is one that I think is often overlooked in the debate about what health insurance does, and that's potential financial protection. Health insurance is about risk. 
So is homeowner's insurance or auto insurance. It's not just about high expenses. It's about protecting yourself from the financial risk of potentially having high expenses when you're not sure ahead of time. So people not only want to consume health care, they want to also not be evicted because they can't pay their rent because of high health care expenses. So one of the benefits we might expect to accrue from having health insurance is reduced financial stress when you have a bad health event. Now, again, it's not obvious how big that effect would be or if it would even be present here. You might say, you know what, insurance is about protecting your assets. Low-income people don't have any assets to seize, so maybe it's not going to make any difference. An empirical question. The second benefit we're going to look at is the one I think everyone has in mind when you start looking at health insurance, and that's what happens to people's health. You would think that when you have access to health care, your health should improve. And because you're, you're getting better care, you're getting earlier care, you're getting more care, it's possible that you might say, hey, you know what, now that I have health insurance, I'm not going to take care of my health because if I have a heart attack, then I don't have to worry about paying for it. That strikes me as unlikely to be a big effect. <laughs> Economics says it could be there, but we have no idea how big it would be. I do have to tell you one little story, though. I, I have to tell you a lot of stories. This is the first little story. Um, when I was out, I've been out in Oregon many times doing interviews, listening to some of the survey data being collected, focus groups trying to understand what's going on in a more nuanced way, and I heard one guy tell a story about when he got access to OHP standards saying, you know what, I was so relieved that I could go back to playing softball on my softball team because I didn't have to worry that if I blew out a knee, I wouldn't be able to pay for getting it fixed. So who knows, maybe there's something in this economics after all. So these are the main outcomes we're going to look at. The data come from several different sources, and I'm going to tell you, thank you very much, a little bit about them, but not too much. And there is a working paper that's publicly available that goes through all of this in painful detail, and we can go into any of the details in Q&A if you want, but I'll try to breeze through to get to the punchline. We have data from the list where people signed up. We have administrative records on whether people actually ended up on Medicaid or not. That seems important. But the outcomes data is probably what you want to focus on. We have hospital discharge data. So we know everything about the hospital utilization of everyone who was on the list. We used the state um, database on hospital discharges that was already being collected, had that merged to the list. So we have it for everybody who's on the list, both the treatments and the controls. We have mortality data. and. In what I think is a more novel data set, we have credit reports. So we know what happened to people's formal use, use of formal credit that would show up in a credit report. Those data are great because they're available for everybody on the list. So you don't have to worry about any selective response rates or, or recall bias or any problem when you collect self-reports. It's complete. But it's not all that specific. It doesn't cover everything you want. Those data sets are great, but they, they're valuably complemented by data we collected from the people themselves, first in the form of mail surveys. So we could ask people things about uh, use that wasn't in this like outpatient use or emergency department use. We're going to get more data on emergency departments. And about use of informal credit. A lot of low-income populations use sources that don't show up in credit reports like pawn shops, payday loans, loans from neighbors and relatives. So we have data on that. And then Data that we don't have available yet, but I think is going to be really helpful in the future, is a year later. This, this data that I described is all a year after insurance coverage. In the second year, we went to people and got 
information from them in person at their home or in a clinic where we collected physical specimens. We collected blood samples to test for cholesterol, diabetic blood sugar control, exposure to infection. We got blood pressure. We got height, weight, and waist circumference to measure obesity. So those physical measures, along with a much more detailed questionnaire, are going to be available at two years. The male survey data from one year is a little sparse because there's only so much you can ask people about in the mail, whereas in person we ask people hundreds of questions about disease management and the like. So those are our main sources of data. There's our study population. You should take from this that Oregon is kind of a rectangle and that the major cities aren't actually on the coast. What do we know about our study population? You guys are the only ones laughing at my little jokes. Come on. Um, what do we know about our study population? Uh, the key thing that I want you to take from this slide is that people who signed up for the list are pretty sick. And this isn't all that surprising. These are low-income people who are really eager to get health insurance. And you see that 18% of them have been diagnosed with diabetes, 28% with asthma, 56% with depression. So this is telling us that we ought to look very carefully at mental health burdens as a, in addition to physical health burdens. There are also um, only 55 only 45% of them are currently working. So this is a, an un- or underemployed population with a high health burden. And this is at baseline in the controls. So don't worry too much about the equations unless you want to. The key thing that I want to tell you is we're going to look at the effect of getting drawn in the lottery, and we're going to use that to then determine the effect of being insured. So I think the policy question people are really interested in is how are people who are on Medicaid different from people who aren't on Medicaid? We don't just look at the people who are on Medicaid. We look at everyone who was selected in the lottery and use that information to gauge the effect of being on Medicaid. For people familiar with the statistical term, this is to ensure that there's no selection bias, that we don't have the same kinds of problems that just comparing Medicaid to uninsured populations would generate. Now, the important fact from earlier about take up is that only about 25%, there's only about a 25 percentage point difference in insurance coverage between those who were selected and those who weren't. Last statistical point before I show you the punchline results is that one danger in doing a scientific study like this is you're looking at a lot of different outcomes. And maybe if you look at enough things, you find something that is statistically significant. And there's a danger there in inference in saying what's due to just dumb luck or chance versus what's a real scientifically grounded effect. We took that into account by saying ahead of time what all of our hypotheses were in elaborate detail and by adjusting our standard errors or our inference to say how sure are we given all the outcomes that we looked at. This is a fairly nuanced statistical point, but I bring it up to say that we've applied the most rigorous possible scientific standards to the evidence because we saw that this was a unique opportunity to gauge these effects. So we really wanted to go the extra mile to do these extra statistical bells and whistles so that you can rest assured that the results are scientifically rock solid. So the results are going to fall into three categories, healthcare use, financial strain, and health outcomes. First outcome is hospitalization. Now, I have a lot of tables here. I'm not going to go through them in detail, but you can see them in the paper itself if you're so inclined. I'm just going to show you this one so that you'll know how to interpret the tables, and then I'll get to the punchlines. What this is saying is that among the control group, those who weren't drawn in the lottery, there was about a 6.7% chance of being admitted to the hospital. That's that first number. But for those who gained access to Medicaid, that's the two-stage least squares, next to last column, there was an additional 2.1% 
probability of being admitted to the hospital. So being admitted to the hospital was about 30% more likely to happen if you had Medicaid than if you did not. And that result is statistically significant with a p-value of 0.004. So enough with that. There are more hospitalizations among those people who are covered by Medicaid than among the uninsured. And some people might have said, wow, access to primary care should have reduced hospitalizations. But no, we see an increase in hospitalizations when people get covered by Medicaid. And that's concentrated among hospital admissions that are non-emergency admissions. It's not people going to the ER and then being sent to the hospital. These are scheduled hospitalizations. And we see the biggest increase in heart procedures. So what about healthcare use besides hospitalizations? When we ask people, we saw an increase in prescription drug use and the number of prescription drugs, an increase in outpatient utilization going to the doctor. We didn't see any change in emergency department visits, but we lacked a little bit of statistical power there, and we're going to get more data on that. We saw a substantial increase in preventive care. So that increase in outpatient use translated to increased likelihood of having your cholesterol checked, having diabetic blood sugar control checked, having a mammogram, having a pap smear. So summing all of that up, a big increase in probability of hospitalization, an increase in total resource use, including outpatient use, prescription drug use, and preventive care in particular, this increase translates to about a 25% increase in resource use. So those who were insured by Medicaid used about 25% more total health care than those who were not. So it didn't decrease utilization, but it didn't increase it by as much as some people might have thought. So, so you can see that as glass half full or glass half empty. What about financial strain? Well, we see no change from the credit reports in bankruptcies, but what we see is a big, deduct, a big decrease in the probability of having a bill sent to collection. And that decline in having bills sent to collection is concentrated in medical bills. So you're much less likely to have bad medical debt sent to collection. What does that do? That affects people who had their bills sent to collection, but it also affects who was paying for that. Because very few bills sent to collection actually result in a payment. So the benefits to that accrue to providers as well as to the people they pass those costs on to. When we asked people about other mechanisms of financial strain, they saw a reduction in out-of-pocket medical expenses, which you would expect if you were insured, a reduction in the probability of owing money or having to borrow money, or being denied treatment. So all of this suggests that both formal and informal credit is under less strain when you have insurance than when you don't. And here's the real punchline, because I'm almost out of time. What happened to health? There were marked improvements in self-reported health. So all of our health measures here come from surveys. So you have to worry a little bit about what people are remembering, but there's no real reason to think that people in the treatment group and the control group are going to differentially remember things, but that's one thing to be worried about. The effects are really large in terms of improvements in self-reported health 54.8% of the control group reports themselves in good, very good, or excellent health, as opposed to fair or poor. And an additional 13% of the treatment group report themselves doing so. So 55 plus 13, 68% report themselves in, in better than good health. Now, those effects are really large. So large that you might think, what's really driving them? What are people telling us about when they tell us about these health results? It's consistent with people's improvements in access to care. They tell us they're much more likely to have a usual doctor as opposed to seeing a different person every time. They're much less likely to have gotten all the care they needed. So you think, okay, this is about their health care. But those results actually showed up substantially before 
increases in utilization. We have a baseline survey that's a couple of months after people got insurance and they're already reporting better health then. So you begin to wonder about what they're telling you when they report their health being better. It's consistent with physical health being better and with an overall sense of well-being being improved. And again, going back to the interviews with people, when I talked to people about this, they said how horrible it was to be uninsured, that they were worried all the time, that they were splitting pills, that they were really stressed about not being able to pay their bills, that they knew they needed care that they weren't getting, they felt like second-class citizens, they hated being the type of person who didn't pay their bills, all of that probably translates into people telling you that their health is better when they're insured. Now, how you value that as a policymaker is a question that economics can't tell you. I can't tell you that that means health insurance is worth this much. You have to decide as a policymaker, how much do I value people being under less financial strain? How much do I value them being in better physical health? These are all different dimensions in which their well-being is improved that policymakers may not take into account in exactly the same way. So what will really help with interpretation, I think, is the physical measures that we're going to get, that, that we have already collected but have not yet fully cleaned and analyzed, of physical well-being as measured by blood pressure, diabetic blood sugar control, et cetera, those ones I told you about. Those will be very helpful in interpreting how much of the improvement in physical health that people tell us about is attributable to these objective measures of physical health as opposed to overall well-being. But what is not in doubt is that people report themselves to be much, much better off when they have health insurance and that they use more care. And those are costs and benefits that need to be weighed against each other in deciding the value of expanding the program or not. One caveat that I would leave you with is that the physical health measures, I think, are incredibly useful, but they're not the be-all and end-all. We only measured a few things with the physical measures, and there are lots of things that I think would fall under the traditional physical health umbrella that are very difficult to measure objectively, like pain. There's a high pain burden in this population. Reducing pain is clearly a physical benefit, but it's very difficult to measure. Whereas things like depression, we measure those by asking people questions anyway. And so some of those measures are easier to interpret. So you've got a, a wide range of reported improvements in well-being that are subject to different interpretation. Um, there are some caveats in, expand, in, in interpreting these results or taking these results and bringing them to the likely effects of the Affordable Care Act, and I'd want to highlight those. One of them is that we looked at the effect of expanding insurance to 10,000 people. Something different might happen when you expanded it to millions of people at the same time. There are no supply side effects in our study because it's a small group of people relative to the population. We're looking at one year out and two years out, but we can't tell you what happens five years out or ten years out. And we can't tell you, um, I'm sorry, I'm skipping ahead because I know we're short on time. We can't tell you about uh, racial and ethnic differences that aren't present in Oregon. For example, Oregon has a much smaller black population than the rest of the US, so we would have a hard time telling you about differences between white and black populations and how insurance would affect them. That said, I think this is the best evidence we have on the effects of expanding health insurance to low-income populations, and this is exactly the type of population that's covered in the Affordable Care Act. It's also a very similar health system to the national averages. Other than that demographic difference I just highlighted, the Oregon health system looks a lot like the national averages. So there's no reason ex ante to think, oh, the safety net is different in Oregon, or oh, the, the doctor-patient ratio is different in Oregon. It looks about like the nation overall. So I'd ask you to take these results with those caveats in mind and stay tuned for two-year results. And I'm out of time, so I can't tell you the story about the FedEx truck, but you can ask me later if you'd like. <laughs> Thank you very much.
That was extremely well done. I'm going to take the moderator's prerogative and ask you the first very quick clarifying question is, when can we expect these two-year results? As fast as our little data gnomes <laughs> can churn, um, these are very complicated data and we're taking great pains to be very hands above the board in how we're cleaning them before we do any of the analysis. So I would say I wouldn't expect them in, certainly wouldn't expect them in less than six months. Okay. All right. Questions from the audience? And do we have a microphone? Yes, we do. We have a nice young man with a microphone. So don't ask your question until you get the microphone. Do you have any clear? Oh, there's a question over here. And can you identify yourself, please, so we know who you are? Hi, I'm, I'm Neil Thacker from NIH. Um, you mentioned that people uh, talked about having sort of a backlog of healthcare needs that they're waiting to attend to. Do you have any quantification of what those are, way of estimating that? Well, I'd point out that the data that we're showing you in those tables come from a full year after insurance coverage and actually a little more than a year, more like 15 months. So our perception is that that is close to steady state. We don't have a time trend because we didn't survey continuously. So I can only tell you that utilization seemed fairly stable between six months and 15 months. So any backlog seemed to have been taken care of in the initial bolus, but I don't have enough of a time series to say that with a great deal of certainty. Question over here. Uh, John Why don't you wait for the microphone, please? I'm John Mazur. I'm a practicing neurosurgeon. Uh, I would uh, maintain that the survey results are invalid because both groups are not blinded. Uh, if you know that you've got health insurance, the expectations for a questionnaire would be that you would be better, and the opposite would be true for the control group. Uh, I think their expectations and their need to please the uh, uh, in investigators would uh, make the survey un invalid. So that is certainly uh, an issue that we sought to address, and I'll give you two pieces of evidence that might suggest it's less of a problem than you do, but also then point you to the administrative data as a uh, backstop to that. So let me give you the more detailed answer. First, we are very careful when we mail out surveys. They are not sent from any Oregon Department of Health and Human Services organization. We have our own letterhead. We have our own logo. We never mentioned the word insurance in any of our mailing materials, and we only ask questions about insurance coverage at the very end, so that throughout the survey it's about, you know, lots of health issues. They don't associate us with the lottery or with the state agency. We did do focus groups afterwards to see if that was the case. That said, you might say, well, even if you've never mentioned the lottery and you've never mentioned Oregon Health Plan, you're asking them about their health. They must be thinking about the lottery 15 months before. Most of them didn't actually remember about the lottery when we did ask them about it, but that could still be the case. What you could do is then compare responses where you have similar external sources, for example, hospitalizations. We ask people about hospitalizations and the probability of hospitalization in the survey, and we have hospital, emergent, hospital discharge data administrative records. So you can compare those to see if you see any differential reporting effect, and we don't. So in theory, that could definitely be a problem, and that is something that you should that is a reason to take all self-reports of anything with a grain of salt. It's obviously impossible to blind people to whether they are insured or not. That would, that's not logical. But asking people about it as best as you can and then comparing those answers, I think that highlights the importance of having both administrative data and survey data so that one can overcome the shortcomings of the other. Question up here in front. Wait for the microphone, please. There you go. 
Thank you. I'm uh, Annabelle Fisher, health mental health provider. Um, one of the questions I is it on? Is it on? Is it, you can hear me. Okay. Thank you. Um, I agree with the doc back there, and I, I have I, I've prefaced my question by saying there's always going to be a group of people we have to take care of, and. Um, one of the questions I have, because I think Oregon, obviously, and I've lived in Washington State and California, so I'm very familiar with the Oregon thing, is how did you handle confidentiality in the HIPAA laws as it applies to the low-income families you were dealing with? Obviously, you're taking data. You're sending out questionnaires with Harvard Medical School or whatever on it. And I've worked at the General, so I know all about Harvard. Uh, you're you sending it like it's a bad thing. I know. I'm telling you. <laughs> Uh, how did you handle the confidentiality in HIPAA? You send out a questionnaire to patients, to people, and obviously Oregon didn't do such a good job in terms of outreach, what have you. But it's a different, I would, I would say you cannot compare the population of Oregon with regard to health coverage or the plan that's out there with other states. So... Um, let me answer those. Yeah, there the are confident. several questions in there, and I don't want to go too long um, because I know Thank them. you. Um, first, we take those confidentiality protections very seriously, as do the four separate institutional review boards who reviewed all of our materials because this is a consortium of people. So each of our institutional review boards reviewed everything as well as the state of Oregon. So we were very... Um, Yes, so we have informed consent from the patients when we get data directly from them. Whenever data is merged within the state, we receive only de-identified data. So all of the names, any identifying information is stripped off of administrative data. And, in, and we, of course, went through elaborate informed consent, um, especially in light of collecting blood samples and the like. So this is something we took very seriously, and I'd be happy to provide you with all the documentation if that would be helpful. Um, your second question was about how Oregon compares to the rest of the U.S. The Oregon health plan standard looks very much like Medicaid in the rest of the U.S. And obviously, 51 states, 51 different Medicaid programs, but is there anything particularly saliently different about Oregon's? They do not cover vision or dental. That's fairly common. They have no copayments for any covered services. So some states have a two or three dollar prescription copayment or doctor's office visit. Oregon is, does not. So that's different from some states, but not so far outside the norm. They cover the same panoply of services that other states do. They have a copay, a coinsurance rate of up to $20 based on income. So most people are paying nothing. Some people right at the edge of eligibility are paying up to $20 a month. So all of that, I think, makes Oregon's program look fairly similar to lots of states' programs. And one, um, I just want, don't want to leave you the impression that Oregon didn't do a good job of outreach. I think they did a fantastic job. They got 90,000 people to sign up in five weeks. So I count that as a fairly successful outreach effort. Uh, it, it looks slightly more generous than U.S. median. You, there are lots of different statistics you can look at, and some people benchmark it against Medicare payments and how do the Medicaid payments compare as a share of the Medicare payments, which is always less than one. Oregon looks fairly typical, uh, slightly more generous than the average U.S. state, but not markedly so. We're going to move on now to the rest of our panel. I'm Kate, it, um, I'm, I'm sorry, Julie. If before we do that, Kate, you might want to take a minute to mention the mortality results. I don't. Oh, yes, I think I'm you skipped sorry. over those I in the presentation. It was on one of the slides, but I skipped over it, and I'm glad you clarified it, Mr. Longus, <coughs> that we saw no effect in mortality. Now we take that as. Um, driven by the fact that the mortality rate in this prime age population, even though they're low income, is very low. So with a low baseline mortality rate, the change seen over one year 
we saw nothing of statistical significance, we will obviously follow that forward. That's the only objective measure of health that we have until we get the blood samples and all of that from two years. So up till now, all the health outcomes are self-reported except mortality, and we didn't see any effect on mortality, but mortality rates were very, very low, under, well under 1%. Thank you. Uh, we're going to proceed with the rest of the panel, which I will introduce now, and I'm going to be a little stricter with the time. Obviously, Kate was going through the study. Um, with our, our commenters, um, I'm going to introduce all three, and then they will go back to back to back, and then we can have some more discussion. Um, first, Robin Hansen is an associate professor of economics at George Mason University, a research associate at the Future of Humanity Institute at Oxford University, and chief scientist at Consensus Point. Robin was also a Robert Wood Johnson Foundation health policy scholar at the University of California at Berkeley. Robin will be followed by Michael Cannon, who has been cited by the Washington Post as, quote, an influential healthcare wonk at the Libertarian Cato Institute. I will add that these people wrote their own bios, I'm just reading them, where he is Director of Health Policy Studies. He is co-author of the book Healthy Competition, What's Holding Back Healthcare and How to Free It. Finally, we'll hear from Rachel, Rachel Garfield. She is Senior Researcher and Associate Director at the Kaiser Commission on Medicaid and the Uninsured, where she's responsible for directing analytic work on the impact of Medicaid and health reform on coverage and access to care. She's previously worked as a Professor of Health Policy, Policymaker for Federal CHIP Implementation and Research Consultant for Hospital Operations and Management. So we will start with Robin. Come up here. This is a fantastic study. Uh, there should be lots more of this. There should be 10, 100 times as much funding for this sort of thing. They should win the Nobel Prize. People should be <laughs> eager to be somebody like them and to work with them. This should just get enormous amounts of attention and prestige. Why I think that, though, is a little bit different than you might think. Uh, so let's go back to very basics. Uh, we talk about health insurance. We talk about health policy. We talk about health coverage, but usually we mean medicine, medical coverage, medical insurance, medical policy, because almost everything that we spend on health, we spend on medicine. Almost all the policy discussions we have on health, we have on medicine. And there are lots of other kinds of things that affect health, which seem to have relatively large and robust effects on health, for which we could do a lot, and we seem largely uninterested in that. We're really obsessed with this medicine thing, but... If you pause and ask, well, how related is health to medicine, and try to say, what do we know about that, it gets a little disturbing. Now, first you go to the medical journals, and you see piles and piles of medical journals stacked to the ceiling of articles, most of which say some particular treatment has a big effect on health. And you think, gee, if they can find statistical significance in every little treatment they do, then if we averaged it all together into one big pile of data about all the treatments together, we'd see this really clear effect. But then when you go look at the data, trying to look at the average effect of medicine, when you look at average variations of places and people and situations where they just spend more on medicine, and you look at whether they're healthy or not, you actually find it pretty hard to see a consistent effect. That is, uh, for example, one of my grad students uh, just graduated. He did one of, part of his thesis on this. He looked at 50 states over 28 years, and basically he found that a 10% increase in medical spending corresponded with a 1% increase in mortality rates. Now, that's typical in the middle range. The, the studies sometimes have positive, negative, zero effects. But the point is when you look at data sets and you try to do 
statistical controls as best you can, you don't find a relatively clear effect, which is disturbing given these piles of medical studies which suggest that you should find a clear effect given how much of an effect they seem to find in those things. So given that you're worried a bit about that, you want to sort of back off and go to, well, what's the best data we've got, the solidest, clearest data that could address this? And as several people have mentioned, there's this gold standard in the past of the RAND health insurance experiment, which is a shining example that we'd like there to be more things like, which this is somewhat like, which is largely why I think it's wonderful. <laughs> it's because it's like that gold standard. So it's not just about us being anal academics who want to celebrate the most rigorous thing just because it's the most rigorous. It's because we have a really basic important question is that this $2 trillion a year we spend, 18% of GDP, like, is it actually affecting health or not? Is it actually helping or hurting health or not? Is a really basic, important question. So just to review some basics about this RAND experiment, uh, it was in the 1970s, late 1970s, that had about almost 8,000 people involved. Each person had about three to five years of medical coverage. They all had health insurance, but it varied in having a strong insurance that basically paid for everything or a weak one that basically made you pay for a lot and they paid for a little. And uh, they looked at, they had some predetermined, in order to deal with the selection effect, they had some predetermined a general health index that they were going to look at. And when they looked at this general health index, when they reported, they broke it down two ways. They broke it down by rich versus poor, the poorest 20% and the rest of the 80%. And then people who were initially sick, the sickest 20%, and the other healthy 80%. And they reported by these four groups. And for these, this four grouping, basically, for none of the groups was there a statistically significant difference in health. Uh, this is like a $50 million thing, so this is like a big deal. The one group that was the most closest to significant was people who were initially well but poor, and then they started like, doing a bunch of stuff, and those people were at a 6% level worse off uh, for doing this. So that's really disturbing. Uh, people like, looked at some other things like blood pressure and, and things like that that you know, it's not clear they selected for. Now, the clearest thing was like people who had free eyeglasses could see better. But I kind of like set that aside. Yeah, sure, if you gave them free cars, they could get places faster too, but it doesn't really speak to the rest of medicine because it's not really very related. Uh, so uh, given that sort of context, it's really disturbing that that was done over 30 years ago. And we haven't tried to do something like that. That only costs $50 million, which is a lot, but we're spending $2 trillion a year on this stuff. And we really ought to spend a little bit some time to find out if it actually works. So that's why... This study is such a, a, a breath of fresh air is that somebody's finally trying to do something that's actually a randomized experiment in order to find out, does this medical stuff work or not? Um, so I celebrate this experiment uh, on the one hand. On the other hand, it doesn't speak that much to the question of the general usefulness of medicine because it really is quite a special population. These people are not at all random. I mean... Again, 55% depressed, 55% unemployed. The average number of sick days per month is 10. Uh, they are just, you know, the average income is 13,000. They're just way extreme. There's people, some people want to help, and, and there's ways to do that, and the question is how much does it help? And it's great that this experiment will say some things. Now, beyond knowing whether medicine helps, we'd actually like to know if it helps via a placebo effect or not. Uh, First, after we find out if it helps at all, we might then ask the question if it's a placebo effect. It still might be a good thing if it's a placebo effect, but it affects how we want to subsidize it or what we want to do with it. Uh, the RAND experiment said even with a placebo effect, we don't see effects. So if there's a placebo benefit, there's some other harm being compensating that. 
Uh, and the RAND experiment also didn't find any difference between people who use more medicine and less in terms of appropriateness of care, severity of diagnosis, anything like that, which is really also disturbing. So now, in this experiment, uh, what we see is a substantial bigger use of medicine, which is what you want to you know, see to see if you're looking for anything. And then you see them saying they feel healthier. Bingo, at least. You're not sure if it's a, a placebo effect or not, but at least it's something. Right? But then most of it seems to show up before anybody does anything. And even later, if we see them actually physically healthier, it could still be the placebo effect of them thinking they'll be healthier, and that's causing them to be healthier. And apparently, there's not really going to be a way to tell in this data set which way that goes, because they just don't have the right kind of data at the right time to be able to see that. So, but at least it might be nice to know that poor folks have a placebo effect benefit if you give them free medicine. Uh, that's, uh, you know, that's at least telling us something, because it's actually solid data using a randomized experiment to find out, rather than just kind of guessing. But uh, it's still limited in the sense of, you know, what helps these people may have little to do with what helps the rest of it. Again, they're depressed, they're, ex they're stressed, they're anxious, and it may be mostly about just calming them down for their stress and anxiety. We, we do see this financial benefit, that is, by giving them money, uh, they feel less stressed about money, which isn't terribly surprising. Uh, if we actually wanted to see, though, whether there was a overall welfare benefit to the free insurance, we might have, and I know they didn't actually have the option because this was a government program, wanted to give them the option to just take the money instead, instead of taking the insurance, because then we could compare the people who took the money to the people who took the insurance and see whether those people were different in terms of their financial stress. Maybe you're just less financially stressed because you got a big pile of resources that showed up on your doorstep, and that was good for you. You know, we don't really need Randomized experiments typically to know get, giving you a big pile of resources makes you have financial problems less, presumably. Although, you know, it's nice to know. It's nice to confirm that, just like the downward sloping demand. It's nice to confirm that, you know, when we pay, when we give people more, when we lower prices, et cetera, things are better off. So uh, bottom line here, we don't really know the relationship between health and medicine. We spend an enormous amount on medicine but we're not really very sure that getting more medicine actually makes you healthier. And when we look at the best data we can, we still aren't very sure. That tells you that you looking at your experience of your uncle who did something better and something is really misleading because that's just not a very good data set. We have much better data sets, since even there we can't really tell. So it suggests that it's hard to tell. It also suggests that we're not getting huge value necessarily from this thing if we can hardly tell if you're any better. So the health policy implication might be whatever this is good for, maybe it's not so, it's not for health per se because that's not, it's even hard to tell whether people are healthier. Uh, but what we really should do is to celebrate experiments like this and try to raise it up because then maybe we could shame or, or induce other people to trying to do the real experiments we need to do, which is to look at more ordinary people and to see whether medicine helps them and to set aside this, I'll call silly ethical barrier that somehow it's unethical to give people all the medicine you could possibly want, you could, for example, give some people a pile of cash and let them spend it on medicine if they want, and other people you could give insurance and you'd induce more people to get any more medical spending that you gave insurance, and you could look at those different people. I don't think it's unethical to give people cash and then prevent them from spending it on medicine if they want. Uh, so it, that ethical barrier isn't really there. It's more a cash barrier. It would just cost a lot to do an experiment like that. And uh, somebody needs to pony up and pay for it.
You were not supposed to know that we wrote our own bios? <laughs> Julie? What Julie did not mention was that the Washington Post was actually quoting me saying that about myself, so that's how I got to quote the Washington Post saying that. If your desk is covered with studies about Medicaid and how Medicaid affects health for this group or for that group, what we're basically saying is now that the Oregon Health Insurance Experiment exists, you should take all of those studies and gently push them off of your desk onto the floor. The only study that gets to sit on your desk anymore is the Oregon Health Insurance Experiment. Doesn't mean you don't refer to those other studies over there, it just means you put them back on the floor when you're done with them because they're, they're not in the same league. So uh, I wanna um, also offer my thanks and my congratulations to Kate and her colleagues for seeing this opportunity, seizing this opportunity and producing these data. Um, I'm gonna be, try to be a little provocative by using the Oregon Health Insurance Experiment as a tool for um, examining a political preference that's probably uh, shared by many, if not most of the people in this room. But before I do that, I want to talk a little bit about why the Oregon Health Insurance Experiment is so important. We've touched on some of these themes. Uh, it's important because, as Kate explained, the effect that expanding health insurance has on financial security or, uh, or health, and Robin mentioned this too, is theoretically ambiguous. And the Oregon Health Insurance Experiment's the only study to control adequately or uh, as well as it has for other factors that may be influencing health or financial security. Uh, Robin mentioned Medicare uh, or that medical care, um, uh, the effect of medical care on health is questionable. Generally, I think Robin would agree, generally medical care does improve health. There are a lot of effective interventions. You get them to the right person at the right time, it'll improve health. And so that on average, the money that we're spending on medicine is probably beneficial. But beyond a certain point, giving people more medical care does not improve health. Beyond that certain point, the medical services that patients receive either have no effect on health or the helpful stuff is canceled out by the harmful stuff. And we don't know where that tipping point is, but a lot of evidence suggests that a lot of Americans are, are beyond that tipping point of receiving medical care beyond the point of positive returns. And the effect of expanding health insurance on health is theoretically ambiguous because we don't know how close the uninsured are to that tipping point. The low-income uninsured are probably farther than the rest because they have less access to medical care outside of health insurance. But we still don't know where that tipping point is, how far the uninsured are from it, uh, how close health insurance will bring them to that tipping point, or whether insurance will take them beyond that tipping point. Likewise, health insurance generally improves financial security, but whether expanding Medicaid broadly improves financial security overall is also theoretically ambiguous. Again, there are factors pushing in both directions. Pushing toward greater financial security, Medicaid protects you from the risk of high out-of-pocket medical expenses. But pushing in the other direction, Medicaid discourages work and private saving. It also crowds out private health insurance and private charity. The taxes that are necessary to fund Medicaid push in the other direction as well. The consensus estimate is that every dollar of taxes imposed by the federal government for Medicaid or whatever program destroys 30 cents of economic activity. And that means there is some magical number of Medicaid enrollees when once you hit that number, you have eliminated exactly one job. Medicaid influences the broader healthcare market in its role as a purchaser. And if Medicaid blocks is so rigid that it blocks cost-saving innovations uh, uh, in uh, healthcare delivery, that too may push in the opposite direction uh, uh, of improving financial security. Parenthetically, we've arrived, I think, at a shortcoming of the Oregon Health Insurance Experiment. It misses some of these effects that uh, influence financial security. Uh, Kate and her colleagues compared those who enroll in Medicaid to those who don't enroll, or more precisely, those who are selected by the lottery to those who are not selected by the lottery. Um, but 
to capture the effects of Medicaid taxes or Medicaid as a purchaser of medical care, you would have to compare a world with Medicaid to a world without Medicaid. And certainly Kate and her colleagues were not able to accomplish that. They obviously couldn't do that. And so the Oregon experiment, therefore, only captures some of Medicaid's negative influence on financial security. We need experiments like these to see which of these factors dominate and, and what is the net effect that Medicaid has on health and financial security. We need randomization to ensure that we're capturing the effects of Medicaid and not some other variable. And now we're at the part where I'm going to get provocative. This experiment, I think, is important also because it reveals something counterintuitive about the push for universal health insurance. The Oregon Health Insurance Experiment and the fact that we're just now, for the first time, getting scientifically rigorous data on the effects of health insurance uh, show that the push to expand health insurance coverage is not primarily about improving health or financial security. Supporters of universal health insurance don't support it because they want to improve other people's health or make them more financially secure. They support it mainly because it delivers for them some other X factor. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, consider, since it's theoretically ambiguous that whether expanding health insurance would improve health, and there have been credible studies, not as credible as the Oregon experiment, but uh, still credible, suggesting that expanding coverage sometimes may not improve health, then if your goal were really to improve health, what would you do? You would conduct experiments. You would fund insurance expansions. You would fund hypertension vans to go into low-income neighborhoods to uh, help low-income people uh, measure and control their blood pressure. You would uh, do the same thing with HIV vans. You would give higher payments to hospitals for trauma care over here. You would spend money over there to improve things that economists believe have a causal impact on health. Some of the things Robin uh, alluded to, things like education, um, income, nutrition, you would see what strategies, uh, which of these experiments uh, bought, bought the most health or financial security per dollar spent, and then you would scale up those programs. But that's not what is happening. Congress passed a stimulus bill and a health care bill with lots and lots of money to promote evidence-based medicine, but they included zero funds for evidence-based policymaking. They appropriated no funds to determine whether, the, for example, the recent health care law's expansion of health insurance will actually improve health. Now, one might say, well, now that we have the Oregon Health Insurance Experiment, we don't need to do that. We, the, uh, the Oregon Health Insurance Experiment has established that Medicaid does improve health and financial security, case closed. And we can proceed knowing that we're promoting those goals. There are two problems with that response. One of them, uh, uh, Robin alluded to, it's generalizability. Even if there are gains in health and financial security here, we don't know whether expanding coverage to higher income groups will yield any or uh, or any gains or gains as large. So I think that um, so that's, that's one problem with that response. But more fundamentally, while the Oregon Health Insurance Experiment has uh, shown uh, uh, that Medicaid delivers gains in health and financial security, that doesn't defeat the point that universal health insurance coverage is about something other than, than those things. If anything, I think it strengthens that point. If universal coverage were really about improving health and financial security, we would look at how much Medicaid spent to deliver those benefits as 10,000 people. We would compare it to other policies, uh, hypertension vans, uh, and what have you, and invest in whatever delivers the most health and financial security per dollar spent. Resources are limited. So if, if these are really our goals, uh, we would want to make sure those resources were being targeted uh, or being spent in the best way. If you polled health economists, they'd probably tell you that hypertension vans is a much more cost-effective way of saving lives. It's going to save a lot more lives per dollar spent than spending that money on health insurance. But no one's calling for hypertension vans or even doing that cost-benefit analysis, which suggests that, uh, that, that supporters of universal health insurance coverage aren't interested in those benefits, and they are actually already receiving or expect that they will receive soon the benefits that they see. So, you know, what's this... The question uh, it begs the question: What is this X factor, 
and I'm not sure what it is. Robin uh, makes an interesting case in one of the handouts here that uh, we purchase health care for others as a sign of loyalty. Uh, when Lyndon Johnson uh, signed Medicare and Medicaid into law in 1965, he spoke of just four. Five. He spoke of justice as one of the motivations uh, for this. But here I'm going to be even more provocative and say that those who support universal health insurance are revealing that, that whatever X factor they're actually trying to uh, uh, maximize, they're actually willing to sacrifice lives to that goal. The additional, and by that I mean the additional lives that could have been saved uh, by hypertension bans or whatever else might save more lives in, uh, per dollar for the money spent than expanding health insurance coverage. Whatever that X factor is, they're revealing that they're willing to let people die in order to get it. I, uh, and so ironically, supporting universal health insurance coverage shows not how much you care about saving other people's lives, but how little you care because you are willing to sacrifice some lives to that other uh, goal that you have in mind. To me, this, I think this is an astounding feature of our healthcare debate and uh, among the considerable good that this experiment, this study is likely to do, uh, I hope it'll, uh, uh, I think perhaps it could do even more good if it pushes us to re-examine exactly why it is that we're pushing for uh, a, a, a policy of universal health insurance coverage, what it is that we're trying to promote because it doesn't seem to be uh, solely or primarily about improving health or financial security. Um, I think this, uh, this study could do even more good if it spurred more states to, uh, uh, to, to conduct similar studies. Um, as Kate mentioned, they're only going to be collecting or, or they were only able to uh, randomly assign people to Medicaid versus no Medicaid versus not Medicaid uh, for, for two years. Um, and so they may not have the, st the statistical power in a state like Oregon necessary to see effects in mortality. If, however, a state like California were to take uh, its, instead of expanding Medicaid to everyone up to 138% of the federal poverty level as uh, the new health care law re requires, if instead they were to expand it to half of the people under uh, the federal poverty, under the 138% of the federal poverty level, uh, and assign those slots randomly, there you get st statistical power. There we would have a lot more questions answered than a small experiment in Oregon would answer. And so I would like to see uh, the, the money that California and the federal government would have spent uh, on a, uh, a full-scale expansion up to 138% of poverty, instead spent on an experiment to figure out whether that full expansion would do any good and how much good it would do. Thank you. Okay, as the last thing standing in the way of our lively debate, I will try to be uh, as brief as possible. Um, but I want to use my time today to do a couple of things. Provide a little bit of context for the study and its findings, and then also to shift the focus slightly to talk not just about the implications of this study for policy, but about the current policy, policy debate um, and some things that are currently being uh, talked about that may influence how we view these findings. So as I mentioned, I want to start off by giving a little bit of context, and I just want to start off with this very uh, broad uh, picture of Medicaid's different roles in our health system. Medicaid plays many different roles in the health system today. Uh, it is, of course, health insurance coverage for the low-income and poor population, which is what we're focusing on today. But bear in mind that Medicaid also provides assistance to Medicare beneficiaries, filling in gaps in that program, provides long-term care assistance for mainly elderly and individuals with disabilities. It is uh, an important source of support for the safety net, 
these are the providers that uh, serve primarily vulnerable populations or exist in underserved areas. And then it's also a source of revenue for states. Uh, and so Medicaid helps states have the capacity to serve their residents. Now, of course, what we're talking about today is Medicaid's role as a health insurer for the low income and, in particular, the poor population. And so I wanted to give you a little bit of data just to give you a sense of the scope of the role that the program plays for that group. And I've split it up here into uh, broad categories that generally match eligibility for the program. And you can see that Medicaid covers the majority of poor children, leaving about 17% uninsured. For parents for whom eligibility is much more limited, um, closer to about 50% of the poverty level, Medicaid reaches about 40%, and we have 44% of poor parents uninsured. And among adults without children who are by and large ineligible for Medicaid unless they are disabled, with the exception of a few states that have uh, waivers like Oregon, uh, Medicaid covers 28% and we have about 46% uninsured. And just uh, as a point of reference, these uninsured rates are more than twice the national average that we see for the non-elderly population. So we know what role Medicaid plays in coverage for the poor. The key question, of course, is what does this coverage mean? And we actually do have a very large body of non-experimental research that has looked at this question over time. And in figure three here, I'm giving you an example of what that uh, research generally shows, which is that compared to the uninsured, Medicaid beneficiaries have improved access to care. And here I've given you some results from a survey, uh, <coughs> excuse me, looking at both children and non-elderly adults. Studies have looked at a range of outcomes. They've looked at utilization, financial outcomes, satisfaction. Some have looked at health outcomes. Some have used statistical methods to look at particular uh, expansions within a state. Um, and while we do see some variation in the particulars of those findings, this general pattern emerges. Now, of course, um, uh, access to care is related to more things than just health insurance coverage. And so as people have been talking about uh, uh, today, it's very hard to isolate the effect of insurance on these outcomes. And one thing I want to point out is that it's particularly difficult for the Medicaid population. And there are a few reasons for that. One is there's a lot of variation in the outcome studied, and I think people have spoken to that today. Do you look at things like mortality that you're not likely to see an effect of within a short period of time, or are you looking at uh, more immediate measures of access? Another reason that we have uh, complications in interpreting the study uh, results in this area is because of the complex health and social needs of Medicaid enrollees. As Kate discussed at the outset, by definition, if you're on Medicaid, you are poor and most likely um, sick. And so when you try to compare people who are on Medicaid to other populations, it's not an apples-to-apples -apples comparison. There's also substantial variation within the groups covered by Medicaid. So Medicaid covers everyone from children and their parents who are relatively healthy compared to individuals with disabilities and the elderly who have substantial health needs. And so one of the challenges when looking at the body of literature is thinking about what population specifically you're focusing on. There's also substantial variation in Medicaid programs across states. So many people often say that there are actually 50 Medicaid programs rather than one. So again, trying to assess the role of the program uh, as a whole, you need to account for this variation in how states structure their programs, 
how they deliver services to their beneficiaries, how they pay providers, what benefits they include, what cost-sharing requirements they may have. And then the last um, challenge that we face with Medicaid, and this is, again, something a bit particular to this program, is challenges in timing of coverage and turnover. Many people enroll in Medicaid at the point at which they become sick. Um, and this happens for a couple of reasons. Either they spend their income on their health services to the point that they become impoverished and then meet the eligibility for Medicaid, or they are not linked into the system that would uh, let them know about their eligibility until they become sick and interact with that system. One of the problems is then when you look at outcomes, you're comparing someone who, uh, as we would say, selected into coverage based on their health status, and that's a problem. Another uh, challenge we have in Medicaid is issues of turnover in coverage. Sometimes this is called churning. Uh, this issue arises because, for a couple of reasons, one is the low-income population has a lot of income volatility, so people gain and lose eligibility. Another is that states have uh, redetermination periods. For example, every six months, you might have to reestablish that you're eligible. If you're looking at outcomes over a period of, say, a year, you may not know that that person had consistent coverage for the entire year. So uh, I think that the Oregon study obviously gets us very far in addressing many of these challenges. On the first, uh, I think a main strength of the study is that it does use a broad range of outcomes. I know Kate wants to study more things, but compared to what we see in a lot of the literature, this is really a very rich uh, set of outcomes using data from different types of sources, so not just survey reports, but also these administrative data that we know are a little bit more reliable. Uh, on the complex health and social needs, obviously this randomized experiment uh, really enables us to do that apples-to-apples -apples comparison, and so is the main strength of the study. Um, and then on the others, I think it gets us part of the way there, um, but there's still some room to build on this. In the variation among groups, um, yes, this study gives us a good picture of how Medicaid works for low-income, non-elderly adults. Um, I would uh, advocate for continuing to study how the program works for other populations, uh, in particular the elderly and disabled. Um, and then, as Michael said, uh, this tells us about one state, albeit a state that is fairly representative of the country, but we don't know how much of the findings were related to how Oregon specifically structured its program. Um, the last thing that I'm going to put out there is this timing issue. We do know that uh, in the sample, some people did fall off of Medicaid eligibility because Oregon had a six-month renewal period for coverage, and so I think that's something to follow up on and think about when we're looking at future uh, outcomes from this. Uh, I did mention I wanted to take just a minute to talk about some of the current policy issues on the table impacting access. I'm running short on time, so I'm not going to go through them in detail, but I did want to draw your attention to several debates that uh, may impact whether we see these findings uh, replicated throughout the country. They have to do with states making innovations in how they're delivering services to beneficiaries, um, trying to address payment issues and uh, address issues in distribution and access to providers, um, and then obviously a host of budget issues. As uh, Julie mentioned at the beginning, uh, Medicaid is front and center in what's happening to state budget crises and also has come up in federal deficit reduction debates. Uh, and last but not least, of course, the expansion of Medicaid starting in 2014 uh, to uh, non-elderly uh, adults with incomes up to 138% of poverty, and as we mentioned already, um, 
in many ways, the population targeted by that expansion resembles the population in this study. So in summary, I just wanted to um, uh, wrap up and say that this study really reinforces and expands on our understanding of how Medicaid works for low-income populations, and in particular for low-income families. But what's going to happen moving forward is dependent on how several things that are currently on the table play out, um, specifically issues related to workforce and supply, as we alluded to at the beginning, um, how services are delivered to people and whether we can do so efficiently. And then uh, a big unknown is what's going to happen with the expansion in terms of outreach, uh, enrollment, and take-up. So I will try to stick within my time and leave it there. I want to thank the panel, and before we open it back up for questions, I want to see if Kate has anything that she wants to respond to from anything any of the panelists have said. Um, I have so many things I'd like to say, but I'll be very brief because I want to hear what you all have to say. Um, I, I would agree with a lot of the basic points that it's hard to know what would happen to millions of people getting insured at the same time in states other than Oregon, that, that there are some limits to generalizability here. I do think it's interesting that the group that we saw taking up is likely to be representative of those who take up Medicaid when it expands in that we know there's imperfect take up. So there's some selection into the group who signed up for the list in the first place. Who was interested in getting Medicaid? Not everyone, apparently. Well, not everyone who's offered Medicaid takes it up. So there's some parallelism there. I would argue that's likely to hold even in a world with a mandate because there are no real penalties associated with failing to comply with the mandate with this group. I think the point is extremely well taken that there are many inputs into health besides health care. And our study cannot tell you if you spent those dollars that were spent on Medicaid on something else, on public education, on better nutrition, on a host of other things, how would they affect health? And there's no way from these data to know whether that effect would be bigger or not. So that's something I think we should all think about in, in structuring goals to improve health that an exclusive focus on the healthcare system is too narrow. I wholeheartedly agree. Um, I would, though, say that we do know that some of the care that people are consuming in this group, I, I'm, I'm less, uh, I'm more bullish on what we've learned from the study in terms of the impacts on health, in addition to what we'll learn from the physiological measures, in that we have evidence from the medical literature about what specific bundles of healthcare consumption do from randomized trials there. So if you believe, and that's nothing that our study can tell you, that, for example, um, pap smears are cost-effective. If, you, if you've learned that from the medical literature and you've learned from this that Medicaid increases the use of pap smears, then that tells you something about the cost-effectiveness of that particular bit of spending, even if we're not measuring the cancers that would have been detected from pap smears. So you have to marry it with some other literature to say, what the long-run health effects are likely to be of the changes in healthcare consumption, but we see uh, substantial changes in healthcare consumption and substantial changes in self-reported health and well-being. How you interpret those changes in health and well-being and how closely those map to the healthcare use that we see is hard to say from this study alone until we get the physiological measures. So I think there's uh, reason to be cautious, but not quite as cautious. I'm not quite as cautious as you were in that regard. I'll stop there because there are lots of other people. Questions? Right here in front. Let's wait. wait for the microphone, please. And don't forget to let us know who you are. Yeah. Yeah, my name is Craig Olson. I'm blissfully retired from the State Department. 
Um, this, is, uh, this is a question for Mr. Cannon. Uh, you slipped in, I wrote it down quickly, and I, I don't know whether, whether I wrote it down correctly or not, but you slipped in the, the following statement. Medicaid discourages work and private savings. Do you have any empirical evidence for that, sir? Uh, yeah, and it's actually from one of uh, Kate's co-authors on, uh, on this study, uh, Jonathan Gruber, who, um, along with uh, uh, Aaron Yellowitz, looked at uh, Medicaid during, I think it was the 1990s, and found that it, uh, Medicaid uh, was associated with a one, uh, one eligibility for Medicaid was associated with a $1,000 reduction in asset holdings. And the reason is Medicaid has uh, income tests and asset tests. If your income is below a certain level and your assets are below a certain level, then you're eligible for Medicaid. You're eligible for, you know, maybe to expand your medical consumption by 25%, and for some people it might be even much, much greater than that. So that creates a, a large incentive for people to hold on to fewer assets uh, to uh, keep their incomes low so they'll qualify for the program. No, and that's why I said it's associated with uh, a reduction because, because again, uh, again, we don't have uh, th this sort of quality of experiment to, to, make, that, uh, to make that judgment about um, uh, what the magnitude is and, and maybe even what the sign of it is. I guess it is, uh, you could say that maybe, uh, I don't know that I could say that Medicaid, that the sign would be negative, but there are sound uh, theoretical reasons for thinking that when you offer a very um, uh, valuable benefit that... Uh, and you means test it, then some people will keep their incomes and assets below a certain level in order to uh, become eligible for that. It's uh, a form. It's, it's really another form of crowd out. You may have heard of health insurance, or I'm sorry, Medicaid and other forms of uh, uh, government and health insurance crowding out private insurance. The idea is. Uh, well, it goes back to the old Samaritan's Dilemma. When you provide assistance to someone, people take less care for themselves, and these are just a couple of examples of how that happened, but your point is well taken. Yeah, I don't have a randomized study to, to point to. Just to jump in on that a little bit, just to provide some context, I, I echo Michael's uh, request to update and replicate these findings. In particular, for example, the rules about assets and Medicaid have changed since that study was conducted, and so the current policy context is not the same as the policy context when those studies were enacted. In particular, um, for many groups, there is no asset test for Medicaid, and so it would be interesting to replicate those findings and see what's happening. The other thing I wanted to mention that um, I think is an interesting piece of the Oregon Health Insurance Experiment that Kate did not have a chance to mention was they did look at uh, what happened to private insurance coverage among people who did not get selected for the lottery. And at the end of the period, it was the same as for those who did get selected for the lottery, implying that it wasn't that people said, oh, I didn't get in the lottery, I'm going to go find health insurance elsewhere. Um, and so uh, I don't know if you want to speak to that a little bit. So I, I think the evidence that Michael cited is as persuasive as possible given the absence of a randomized trial and that they're quasi-experimental methods that we can talk about in detail later, but that people did try to take great care. And my suspicion and my reading of the evidence as a whole is that those effects are likely concentrated among people who are at the higher end of the Medicaid eligibility spectrum. If you're if you're if you have a job but it doesn't have insurance but if you work some more hours it would or if you're close to the asset limit those effects are strongest for our population as rachel said we saw no crowd out of private insurance even though other literature finds crowd out in other populations in part i think because we are getting a very poor 
highly disabled population, and they don't have the outside option of a job that offers health insurance benefits. So we saw no action on private health insurance, and that is probably a function of the population that we looked at. And that goes to the broader point that Rachel was making as well, that this is a specific population. We can tell you about what happens to low-income adults who are interested in getting Medicaid when they get that coverage. That doesn't say what would happen to children if you expanded coverage to them, or what would happen to higher income adults, or what would happen if you gave people private insurance. Those are all different questions. I think this is a particularly interesting population that we've studied, but I would take great care in generalizing up the income distribution or to different types of insurance. Over here, Leighton. Hi, I'm Leighton Koo from George Washington University. I don't University. think it's on. Yes, it's on. Hello? Now? Okay. So I'm, I'm still Leighton Koo from George Washington <laughs> University. Uh, and, and so I have a, a, a well, a, just a little comment and then a, a slightly different question that's more speculative. One question is just to reinforce the point that, that, that Rachel Garfield meant. Again, I love the study. I respect the study. I've, I've done randomized studies in the past. I respect randomized studies. It is an incremental improvement. There's been lots of research before that tends to find the same sorts of findings. So it's not as though, yes, this is unique to Oregon, unique to this population. On the other hand, the, the sort of other quasi-experimental studies done off national samples tend to find similar things. So again, is, it, is this just some quirky thing that happened in Oregon? I, I sort of doubt that. Now, the other question that I have, however, is one of the big limits as we think about uh, expansion of healthcare on a much broader basis really is this provider availability issue. And, and the question of, Will there be providers who will be willing to take care of Medicaid patients? And I guess uh, the question that I have for Kate is, you mentioned very briefly something that was an aside, but I, uh, you know, it had to do with the notion that it looks as though there's less medical debt, and so in general, conceivably, providers are actually getting more money in. Is there anything in your, in, in your database that talks about sort of what's the net impact of these expansions on healthcare providers? I mean, obviously, since health insurance Actually, the money doesn't go to the people. The money goes to the providers. You would expect that when we expand health insurance, actually the net income to providers goes up. Nonetheless, I suspect that lots of providers worry when Medicaid expansions uh, occur, actually, that they're going to lose money. I've heard lots of doctors say this. And so any thoughts on this matter? Well, what we can say is that we see people consuming more health care, both in their self-reports and in the administrative data. And we know that Medicaid what Medicaid pays on average for an enrollee. So we know that that amount of money is being injected into the system that wasn't there before. So that there is on net more money going to healthcare. Now, would people have paid for that healthcare out of pocket at higher rates? The data suggests no, in that they consumed less healthcare when they were uninsured. What happens to the bad debt? Um, there, we know that bills that are sent to collection are almost never collected on. I think the measure is something like 2% of bills sent to collection result in a payment. So that's extra, uh, that's bad debt that is not being injected into the system. Whether that accrues to providers or whether providers are able to pass those on to other customers, those bad debts, is an open question. There's a great deal of debate about how, that, how much of that occurs, and I suspect that it depends a lot on the competitiveness of the markets in which the bad debt is being incurred. So those benefits are accruing to people other than the patients themselves, but the healthcare consumption is clearly rising and Medicaid is spending more money, so that has to be more net dollars in the system. Up here. 
Jean Montgomery. I'm curious here, a couple points. One is that if uh, what you've demonstrated here is that if you do nothing more than declare that everybody has health insurance single-handedly, you're going to improve health. Uh, uh, I mean, obviously, I have to follow it up with some credible payments, but uh, just the relief of anxiety of people that they would, if they got sick, that they would uh, be covered uh, single-handedly, you've fixed that. Um, my other question would be uh, if you have any idea what kinds of expenditures there were in this data, how many cases of cancer, was all of the data just treating people for high blood pressure and diabetes, and what uh, breast cancer, what, what kinds of expenditures happened in this year or two year period? So, the, to your first point, I would highlight and I, I think that this is what you were getting at, that insurance has insurance value whether you consume the good or not. And that's something that always bothers me in the healthcare debate is people say, oh, well, I didn't consume any healthcare, so health insurance didn't do me any good. I don't think, gee, my house didn't burn down, wish I didn't have that homeowner's insurance. You know, the, the insurance is a valuable thing even if in a given year you don't happen to utilize the services. So I think giving people that financial protection in and of itself is valuable. I, I don't think that it's just saying that they have insurance, it's actually knowing it, it's a, it is the truth that they have some financial protection. So that seems very important to me, I agree. We don't have much granularity in the healthcare utilization data from the one-year mail survey, so we have a great deal of granularity in the hospital discharge data where we have procedure codes in the standard UBO4 form, so we have a lot of detail on that. We only asked people 55 questions in the mail survey, so things like, did you go to the doctor? How many times? Did you go to the hospital? How many times? Is all we have from the mail survey from the in-person survey that we did at the second year that you didn't see data from here. Rather than 55 questions, we asked people up to 800 questions depending on what conditions they reported. So we'll have a lot more granularity there in terms of if somebody said, depending on which condition, so if you were diabetic, you got the diabetes module. If you had high blood pressure, you got the high blood pressure module. So we'll have a lot of detail on disease management and granularity of consumption there. Okay. Can I, I can I step in? Okay. Uh, I'm concerned about framing this in terms of uh, insurance, in terms of the financial effects. So uh, these people are making roughly $13,000 a year as their income. The financial value of the medical coverage you're giving them might be roughly half that amount, right? So it's like a 50% increase in their income. So, you know, giving them a big 50% increase in their income and then seeing their financial problems are less, it's not necessarily about the insurance and risk management. It's about you, you gave them a big pile of money. Right, so, so uh, we need to separate out the income effect from the variance. And then that's a good point, that you've given people a chunk of resources, it's less than half, but it's a fair chunk of money, but you've also cut down on variability, and you can see that a little bit in the credit report data in terms of the probability of a right tail event. So what you, we, we look at in the credit report data, if you have a very big expenditure, what then happens? Can we trace out a change in your risk of bankruptcy or your out-of-pocket spending? We can get into right. the details of that too, but I, I think this is an important distinction to make between a resource and a reduction in variability, mean versus variance. And it does, again, raise the question of would they have preferred to get this as cash <laughs> rather than this financial medical benefit? I think we have time for, for one more question right here. It's coming. Hi, I'm Peter McManaman with the American Nurses Association. I, I guess it, an observation would be that, and you've made this, that this is the low-income adult part of Medicaid. 
a lot of the commentary in the articles has said, well, they've studied this expansion of Medicaid as if it were across the board. The low-income adults are 23% of uh, the Bennies nationally. So it's a particular small fraction. What I think would be useful would be if you could take those numbers and tease out of the Affordable Care Act expansions expected, about half on Medicaid, half on uh, their private insurance, what proportion of the expansion of Medicaid is going to look like the low-income adults? And similarly, what percentage on the private market expansion are low-income uninsured adults who may be working but just don't have insurance, but they may also look like the, uh, the low-income adults in the Oregon experiment? So there will be more elderly under Medicaid. There will be more uh, higher income or middle income that may not be characteristic of this particular population. But I think if you could say, you know, it maybe it's 40% of the Medicaid expansion and maybe it's 25% of the projected private insurance expansion, I think that would help. I don't know if Rachel knows the answer to this. It's, it's not going to look like the subsidized private insurance population. Their income is going to be higher. Our income's all under 100% of poverty, and the Medicaid expansion goes up to 138%. I don't know what share of the 100, what share, how many millions of the newly insured are adults under 100% of the federal poverty level in the projections? Yeah, I don't have the figures off the top of my head, but they are available, and so um, we can follow up afterwards if you want the exact figures. But I can tell you that the estimates are that the vast majority of the newly eligible people are going to be these non-elderly adults who are currently ineligible for coverage in most states. Um, for children, current Medicaid eligibility levels are, are higher. And so there will be some children coming in. Um, many of those are children who are currently eligible but uninsured right now. Um, but the majority are, are estimated to be uh, this population that we're talking about today. And the, the differences between this population and, and the Medicaid population at large are, are, are a couple. One of them is these are the 90,000 Oregonians who are eligible and most likely to benefit from Medicaid coverage because they signed up themselves. So I don't know how many were eligible but didn't sign up you know, beyond that 90,000. But uh, those people are presumably less likely to benefit. And then there are uh, people from 100 to 138 percent of the federal poverty level who likely have you know, more access to resources than uh, those below 100. And those folks will gain coverage under uh, under the, med the new law's Medicaid expansion. So whatever results you see in this experiment, I think, are going to be sort of the high watermark for the benefits that expanding Medicaid uh, are, are going to confer, because you're really, they're really looking at the people who are most likely to benefit, and other groups are less likely to. I'm going to suggest that we continue this discussion, but with refreshments, <laughs> which are next door. So I want to thank the panel very much. Thank, thank you. you.